Hey everybody, welcome to Let's Talk Game Design. Uh, this is the Blaster Edition of Let's Talk, where five of the world's best indie game designers get together. We're hosted by uh, Greg Horton, our august uh, graphic designer and marketing expert who's <laughs> part of the Blaster team. And we're gonna talk everything to do with game design. Um, all those topics you want, like to hear about and that five dudes who write tabletop games will talk about when they get together. Things like points or no points, um, alternating activation systems or I go, you go systems. Uh, the, the, just the various sort of like, uh, I guess, controversial topics or topics that come up. How do you become a game designer? What do you use when you write? How do you write? Uh, these are the things that we tend to chat about together and we thought we'd make a series out of it. So we're doing this live on Facebook uh, for folks to chime in on and I'll be restreaming this on my uh, YouTube channel as part of Let's Talk going forward. I've been struggling to find a way to do Let's Talk and this felt like a great way of doing it. Uh, and so I will give you a sort of parental advisory. Anything can happen in these shows, they are live. There might be some language you don't normally hear on GMG. Uh, so listener and viewer discretion is advised. Hey everybody, welcome to another Let's Talk Blaster, uh, where we talk about game design with the various game designers who are part of the Blaster crew. Today I'm here with Mike Hutchinson. Say Hello. hi, Mike. The camera doesn't go to you unless you say hi. Oh, I see. We're in that mode. Yeah, there you go. Uh, it's Mike. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, this is Mike. He is the author of Gaslands, A Billion Suns, Perilous Tales, and lots of other games on Planet Smasher Games. Um, and of course has just uh, released A Billion Sons through Osprey Games this past week. Uh, we're going to be talking today about a subject near and dear to my heart because I'm too dumb to really grasp uh, a certain level of game, and that is the term crunch. Uh, crunch in games gets thrown around a lot on the internet. And um, before we get too deep into it, I think that Mike and I are going to debate actually what that term even means to us because it's going to give you guys who are listening and watching this um, hopefully a good sort of like jumping off point for, for this conversation. Um, when I say crunch, what I mean is the depth to which you need to go to operate mechanically or operate before playing a miniature game, tabletop game or whatever. So crunch typically means the thickness of uh, necessary human RAM, basically random access memory for me to play a game. Uh, and it can, also, it can also mean the depth to which a game can be played. It can mean the depth of options, there's a lot of things that go into that term crunch, but if I was to sum it up in a nutshell, it's basically how many plates do you have to spin at the same time in your head in order to approach beginning uh, to get to the table, getting onto the table to play a game, and then even just like the after effects of like who won the game, how how much do I how much have I learned from the game, how do I process the experience that I just had of playing the game? Um, what does it mean to you, like? I I guess I come at it from a bit of a role-playing game perspective. Like that's where I first bumped into this term. And for me, crunchy things were things like uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay or uh, RuneQuest that had like a rule for everything. And there was mm. plenty of rules in the rule book. And if you needed to do a thing, there was a rule for it. Whereas, you know, then role-playing games got a little bit more free and easy and improvised theater. And it was just like, well, stuff is going to happen. And here's like three rules that broadly cover everything. And you can just fudge those in whenever you need them. Mm -hmm. um, so that, I think that's kind of my broad mental map for it. So Crunch. Can, can you give an example of like a of like two different RPGs that take a different look, and one's crunchy and one's not? I can think of one between uh, like D and D and fantasy role play, um, and and to me that would be in fantasy role play you'd have hit locations. Different parts of your body could take damage versus like in fifth edition D and D you just have hit points, and that represents any kind of damage you can possibly take, right? Um, yeah, that's that's a that's a perfect example. Like yeah. when I play uh, when I play 
Cthulhu role playing with um, Trail of Cthulhu or whatever, like combat is kind of fast and hairy and it doesn't, you know, it's much more about getting back to the investigation. You just want to find a cinematic moment. Whereas if you play RuneQuest by the book, which we occasionally do, then you find out which ligament gets severed. In oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> but only a minor exaggeration yeah that's funny we were just talking to um joe mccullough before this we were all in our blaster like big group chat and he held up a copy of the new edition of pathfinder and it was like three inches thick it was like you could literally use it to like have a small child sit higher at the dinner table um it was it was phone book scale so let's my wife has a my wife has a rule of thumb which i think applies well to rule books which is if it's thicker than your thumb it's probably too thick Mm mm-hmm that's not a bad idea. Um, so, so let's talk about some historically crunchy games. I'm going to give some examples. And again, this is going to get argued with by you, the viewer, the listener, um, probably in the comments, because everyone's definition of crunch is going to be different, right? Some people, I think the more you enjoy crunch, you consider things less and less crunchy. And it takes a more extreme example, probably for you to consider something to be crunchy. And that's, so, so I do want to like caution everybody. This is a sliding scale. Like your experience is going to be different from mine and Mike's experience. And there's going to be a level of like. Crunch is, crunch is not a, not, crunch is not a derogative term. Neither you no. or I think crunch is necessarily a bad thing. In fact, crunch can be a delicious texture. That's right. And it's a, and it can be applied judiciously in a game where certain mechanics can be crunchier than others in order to emphasize certain things. Right. Like, so for instance, Um, To give an example of one of your games, I would say that uh, shooting is far less crunchy in Gaslands than maneuvering is, right? Because the emphasis you want to have is on driving the car, not shooting the guns. Yeah, the the game doesn't give a hoot about shooting because it's like a tiny little moment. And so it's got the simplest resolution system it could, and then it gets on with all the complex bidding and and push your luck mechanics of the actual spinning wheels which are right because from a design point of view you want them to spend time thinking about driving the car not thinking about pulling the trigger and that's in a driving game really important and so that's these are kind of i think good upfront provisos for people to consider when we're having this conversation is that it you can have a crunchy mechanic in a game that's overall relatively light and a fun party game because you want to put that emphasis in that certain area of game design and for you up-and-coming game designers this is a really, really, really good example of places where you want to slay your darlings. And that's a great writing term where if you have a favorite part of a game or a thing that you're stuck on that you're writing over or like overwriting almost, that might be the place where you don't want to emphasize something or you want to think about what is my game trying to emphasize um, in order to get that balance of crunch versus sort of like streamlined gameplay correct. Um, so Talking about crunch again, um, I'm going to give you some, I'm going to throw out some historical examples of crunchy games. Obviously you talked about, I just talked about Pathfinder second edition, which is a relatively crunchy RPG, although not the crunchiest. Um, The opposite of that being light might be the storyteller system for Vampire the Masquerade, which uses a very light sort of like skill-based system, but doesn't necessarily have like very in-depth mechanics for resolving things. The idea is the storyteller picks which of these different skill areas that you're going to use. And it's just a D10, right? Um, some very crunchy uh, spaceship games, for instance, might be something like Starfleet Battles, <laughs> where there's there's a there's almost like a, a, a historical joke as to how complicated those games were. They had phone book size rule books, rule books that were easily three or four inches thick um, to resolve everything from like what deck the damage of your spaceship got, you know, took, like what oh no the holodeck's offline, like <laughs> whatever, like super superfluous levels of detail that only the true like fan would really care about at any given time, but that might come up in some corner case in the game. 
Um, Battletech is a good example where you're managing robots and like you're managing everything to like the systems underlying the superstructure of the robot where they can get damaged and go offline. Um, and but actually, with the emphasis being on the robots, there wasn't a huge amount of emphasis put on the pilot. They only had two skill trees and then like a base pool of hit points that they could take before they would go unconscious. So what's really interesting is even a really crunchy game like Battletech, where like you're heating up your engines and there's all kinds of millions of modifiers for attacking and stuff like that, chose to reduce the detail on certain things to, to streamline them. So like the pilot mechanic is way more streamlined than, for instance, the actual mech mechanic. Um, so what are your, so do, to take, a, I guess, another page from that, what are some of your favorite examples of crunchy game systems that you loved, like the attention to detail in certain areas? I mean, one one of them, it's kind of a perennial joke, but one of them that always I, I enjoyed a lot as a kid was Rifts from Palladium Games. Like that was, um, and it's crunchy in the way that it's like, like the rule, some of the rules are just there for their own sake. Uh, and your handwriting doesn't really matter in this apocalyptic science fiction future, <laughs> but yeah. your handwriting is a skill you can have. <laughs> yeah. And it's like in, so, so the reason I bring up that example is one of the things that I strive for as a games designer is to look at every element that I've included in the in the current draft of the manuscript and go, what the heck are you doing there? Are you adding to the fun? And I think that one of the negative aspects of, um, one of the negative implications of the term crunch, certainly as, as I would like historically root it in something like Rifts is there's a there's a there's an enthusiasm for oh the game could simulate this the game could include this like oh this is a fun idea and you add all these layers of additional mechanical um, complexity without necessarily then just pulling it all out again because it doesn't add anything to the fun so um, that I think is a good example of a game that has an un for me an unrequired amount of crunch because it's not really serving the core mechanic it's not really serving the core game experience it's just like yes mega damage and all this other stuff mm -hmm. yeah there's um there's an example of that in even just pop culture games like warhammer where they've slowly over time taken away certain statistics like for instance your your uh sort of mental statistics on a on a warhammer figurine used to have different different categories like it, everything that's now summed up by leadership used to be like willpower cool intelligence and these were all used from like an, a role-playing point of view to resolve really corner case things like when does your orc and warhammer need to pick a lock well in a large mass combat game not very often right it doesn't necessarily have to use a stat or a skill that only comes up in a corner case and so eventually they just kind of boiled all of those into a single stat which is leadership so and the game used to have a certain amount of crunch that that doesn't exist anymore because it's just it's superfluous to the the core gameplay experiences which is huge blocks of troops marching up to each other and fighting yeah and i think actually one one of the one of the big one of the big shoves that pushed me over the, the edge into being a person who was designing games for hobby to being one who wanted to go and publish something was realizing after about three and a half years of playing um, six, six player games of Warhammer Fantasy Battle where we play about 10 to 12,000 points um, aside. And we did this every Saturday and we had, a, we had a great time, but the rules were getting in the way of the fun because the rules that we were playing were Fantasy Battle and we should have been playing something much more streamlined so that we could play these big games without so many um, confusions and corner cases. And, and, and you know, we, we had detail that we didn't need for the kind of experience that we were looking for. And that was one of the things that pushed me over into uh, writing a game called Hobgoblin, which was, it broadly looks a bit like Dragon's Rampant or um, Kings of War. It's got the same kind of mm -hmm. DNA of like, what if things are more similar to each other and there's fewer corner cases? Um, yeah, and we're not managing troopers, we're managing units, like that kind of like that. It takes one step back, basically. Yeah, because it's trying to, and it's and it's trying to do a slightly different 
it's 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 approaching the, the storytelling in a slightly different way. You got lost. Where'd you go? I um, <laughs> so on, on the on this on the other end of the historical spectrum. So uh, the things that were not at all crunchy, that would like insanely simple, but I loved as a kid. There was a couple of them. One is. Um, a very simple war game called uh, the Battle of Little Bighorn, which I think like Warner, um, sorry, uh, MB Games put out maybe, uh, or maybe no, Waddington's I think it was. And it's got some cowboys and it's got some Native Americans and it's from like the 1960s and it was my dad's copy from when he was a kid. And it's got square, squares on it, sort of spaces and- Gridded, gridded sort of format to go yeah, into. Like yeah, it's a gridded layout and you've got General Custer in the middle and you know he's got some guns and then you've got the Native Americans and they've got some horses. And there's a really nice, like it's the same board every time. It's the same setup every time. It's the same miniatures every time. And the, di the dice system was really simple. And I love that thing. Like we played that board game over and over and over again, trying to figure out if General Custer can get out of this situation. Mm -hmm. And the other one, which I encountered later, but like really spoke to the Battle of Little Bighorn part of my soul was uh, Thunder Road. And that game only takes 15 minutes to play and it only has about four rules in it. But you get condensed into that 15 minutes, like a really, really authentic Mad Max 2 experience. And it doesn't right. need a lot of rules to create that. And because it doesn't have a lot of rules, it doesn't also give you that experience for very long. And that is one of the downsides of not having a crunchy system. But those are two things that I, I love, despite the fact that they have almost no rules in them. Mm -hmm. It's funny because the some of those games uh, become uh, beautiful in their simplicity when when you play them over and over again, you don't necessarily have the same result. And my experience with Thunder Road was you never played one game, you played three or four of them in a row. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, I, and what I always thought if, is if I was the person designing this was the, 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 the process of playing them would change slightly. And it's interesting because certain games, I think that's where the mechanical beauty comes in, resolving the game isn't as interesting as resolving the game in multiple different ways, which means taking the Rubik's cube and resetting it differently every single time. A Rubik's cube is a very, a very simple children's puzzle, but the way that you mix it up at random, right. makes the experience different every single time you, you do the same process of eventually unraveling it. And I think that's the, that's the joy of an elegant streamlined game system is if it's presented in different ways over and over again, where the system itself is, actually just facilitating you solving either a two player or whatever puzzle, right? Where you're going back and forth, trying to use simple mechanics to resolve a complex problem. And that's like, that really is the goal because then what you have is you have this level of accessibility. Um, another thing I think that's worth bringing up in the terms of crunch is how much work is required before you sit down to play, because yeah. that in and of itself can be a huge amount of um, stress for a, a person approaching that. Uh, and that that's a thing where I think you you as a game designer, you walk the finest balance is what does the person need to know before they get to sit down and have fun for the first time? And if that's a huge amount of reading or a huge amount of work, I think that's and that ends up being a barrier to someone even trying what you're doing. Whereas it's, it's one, of the, it's one of the places that role playing games actually like they have an opportunity to do something more aggressive here because you have a game master, you have someone mm -hmm. who's like, who owns the game and it's kind of their job to learn all of the legalese. Whereas I think a successful tabletop miniatures game, like it's much less likely that one person is going to bring the rule book and the only person that's going to know the, the, the rules is one side of the table. Like it doesn't really work like that in practice. It, it's weird because even in a board game situation, like just playing a normal board game quite often, the owner of the game will be the person that sort of 
is the keeper of the rule book. <laughs> but um, so you're not only dealing with can one person digest and understand your game, but can multiple people all faced with this rule book be like, yeah, okay, I'll give this a look rather than being like, no, it's too much. I can't be bothered. Let me just play something I already know, please. And that's where presentation, I think, becomes really important too. And you've actually seen major game companies um, like, for instance, um, Games Workshop silo information to make their games less scary because Warhammer 40,000 and, and even Age of Sigmar at this point are enormously crunchy games from the point of view of trying to have all of the game's information in your head now is impossible. If you were to know what every single unit in the game did, you would need to study it for hours and hours and hours and even understand how those things interrelate. But what they've done is they pull the engine out of the car and they put the core rules to one side and say, no matter what you're playing with, the pieces are relevant. Here is how the game is played at a general level. And so you get, you know, five to 10 pages of rules that are easily digestible and easily approachable by everyone. And that's intentionally being done, siloing the superfluous information and pulling out the core mechanics allows people to approach a game and not be completely terrified of it, right? And so it's funny because if you look at the, the Warhammer 40,000 rulebook right now, I'm reading the second edition rulebook, which is divided into the rules, the war gear uh, section, and then like there's the Codex Imperialis that has a bunch of stats and stuff like that. Even back then, they took what was the Rogue Trader rulebook, which was just this like garbage dump of information. <laughs> there's like, here's here's even included like how would you like well, that, that create was, a profile like exactly, but that was that was written in the age of writ exactly didn't have any editing like this is cool this is cool this is cool yeah. like, let's just let's just out. let's just make this borscht of like <laughs> gaming ideas that are all slammed together and that's why it's so lovely to read still so lovely to read but like i don't want to play that no i i couldn't i wouldn't know how to even approach playing it sometimes like you'd need to you'd, i would need to read it cover to cover again to and then like prep myself for a week to record a video for it and i'm not saying i'm not going to do that i am probably going to do that because i'm that kind of idiot but like <laughs> And by probably, I mean, like, I've been planning to do it for years. But the the, the thing is that, like, you see a, ver a very different approach today to trying to silo some of that information and put it to one side and sequester what does the person need to know versus what don't they need to know right away. And even, like, the the ordering of information in a rule book, Joe, Joe and I have had lots of talks about this, where Joe is very adamant that books be written where temporarily the reading of the book follows the steps in which the player would do it before putting their pieces down on the table. And so he's very interested in, in writing things in a way that you do them when you're a gamer. So the first thing he talks about in his books typically is getting ready to play, not the rules of the game, not what you're going to do when stuff gets down on the table, but getting ready to play right up to the point of collect your pieces. Here's how many you'll need to, to go. Here's the information you need to put them together into a cohesive unit to play my game. And then the rules begin at, okay, now find a table space about this big and put them down this far from each other. And then it gets into setting up the table and you don't actually, you don't actually have to read anything out of order. Right. And even that can be a thing where you can have a ton of detail. You can have eight spells for eight different schools of magic, which is 64 possible spells you can choose to make your wizard, but you don't need to know all of it to get ready to get down to sit to play a game. So the barrier becomes reduced to, to having to absorb information prior to playing. Yeah, so, I, I, I'm really, I'm really torn on that on that topic. But w one thing I will say is that that idea of pulling out the core engine, uh, which you know, in Age of Sigmar, literally means in the starter box you get a piece of cardboard that mm -hmm. only has those rules on it, and that's actually something they've done for a long time with that getting started thing. But in the way that I've tried to lay out the rules that I've 
put into print and I still don't feel like I'm getting it right. But what I try to do is say, here's the basic rules. This will get you from the beginning of a turn to the end of a turn and it won't, it won't cover all the exceptions and all the exotic stuff. And then there's a thing that's like the advanced rules which covers all the exotic stuff that you won't necessarily encounter. And that is an attempt to say, look, look, the game isn't actually that complicated and crunchy. The basic chassis of it is relatively simple to understand. And then you bolt all these extras on when you need them and you don't need them all. Like you can have some of these and not have some of these. So let's um, plug for a second because you did do something different this time around with the Billion Suns that I thought was really interesting that actually dovetails into this. And the Billion Suns, of course, just right. came out. Uh, we'll link it below in the video if you want to check it out. I'll put the links to getting at Osprey Games and Drive-Thru RPG. I'll also link uh, my review of the book and our Let's Play from today too. Um, but you can uh, get a demo of A Billion Suns before you start reading the rules because the first like two and a half pages are actually here's a, it's a it's almost like a literary battle report of the turn structure and what someone is doing to play the game. And I thought that was really interesting. What 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 was the what was the sort of like background mental gymnastics and choosing to do that and how you went about doing that? Mm, there's a, so there's a couple of reasons for it. One is it's kind of a bananas game that breaks all of the. There's a lot of places where the game does something that you wouldn't intuit that it was that it that it should do. So a lot of conventions of uh, war games are broken by a billion suns, and so in order to avoid people getting really lost in some what the heck moments quite early on, I wanted to lay the complete superstructure of the game out in front of you. The other thing is um, I did not for various reasons get a lot of opportunity to demo this game to people so with gaslands like i had spent a lot of time explaining the game to people and i'd gotten really boiled down like my my description of what the essence of the game was and you'll actually see that at the front of um uh, gaslands refueled there's a bit that says so gaslands in 60 seconds um, and there's a description of roughly what gaslands is it doesn't really go into the rules but it sort of says you're gonna do this and you're gonna do elevator that. pitch yeah yeah, it's kind of a slightly extended elevator pitch, which gives you a sense of the superstructure. But because A Billion Suns is slightly bonkers, I wanted to give people a clearer picture of like, here is an entire turn and how weird it is. A lot of this stuff is not going to make sense to you, but it's going to make a lot more sense when you read the rules given this this context. And so the sort of the way that I presented the rules, which um, has already had a bit of commentary and criticism, is that I sort of give you the rules three times where I go, here's roughly how it works. Here's exactly how it works. And here's a, an example of it working in practice. So, you know, with some italic example text. And then I try and provide some pictures and I wish I had space for, for more pictures, I guess, because of because I think some people pick up information in different ways. Mm -hmm. So that was it. I wanted to tell you, tell you what I've told you, tell you again. <laughs> <laughs> tell them, tell them what I told them. Yeah, yeah. yeah, tell you what I'm going to tell you, tell yeah, you. Yeah, tell them what I'm going to tell you, yeah. Yeah, classic. That's a that's a that's a very classic uh, corporate training mantra for those of you who have never spent time in large businesses. Also, how they tell them, tell them you're going to tell them, tell them again. Yeah, it's how they taught school children in the fifties. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um. So so interestingly, uh, I think that that does though lay a cool foundation for approaching the detail in the game because a billion sons once again. Um, if you were to grade it on, I don't know, Starfleet battles to chess, <laughs> where, where are we you think on the, on like the detail and complexity scale you've, you've boiled down to what, how many pages? It's 64 pages, 64 pages, but I mean, they're, they're dense and at the table, it feels like there's a lot, I don't know. It's difficult because I think you, you sort of opened with this comment 
which is the same for me, but I can't understand how you absorb so many games and play them. <laughs> and then people are like, he got a, a rule wrong. Like he plays yeah. 17 games a month. It's like different games a month, people. Yeah. Um, so I am easily, easily confused and I easily mess up rules and digesting an entire game system is for me, not a super easy thing. So for me, I want a game to be quite simplistic in its rules so that I can play it without too much faff, but I want it to be complex enough in its interactions in the, so that there is important decisions to make and strategies to be mm -hmm. found. And so for me, I don't, like the one thing I certainly feel is that it is crunchier than Gaslands. It feels Certainly, crunchier. yeah. Um, how crunchy it is on this sort of, like international scale of crunchiness. I don't know. I, I feel like, I feel like it's not got that many rules in it. They just interact a lot. There's just a lot mm -hmm. of points where the rules bump into each other. And there's a lot of permutations too. The one thing I've noticed so far about a billion sons is that there is because so you should give some background to those of you listening. A billion sons is a game where you show up to the table with nothing prepared. And I do really like that. The, the amount of prep work, you need to have a general understanding of how the game works, but you don't write an army list. You don't necessarily bring the ships that you know you're going to exactly use. You just bring your ships. And you don't even have the table set up until the game is actually underway, right? You sit down, you pick a scale, you generate your contracts, you decide and the scale is going to dictate how, how long those contracts go, so how much revenue is available from those contracts. And then in when you're actually into the game bidding, you're actually bringing your army onto the table. So a lot of the decisions that you would typically make before you play a different tabletop game, you don't make until you're actually playing it, right? So like Gaslands, you've already built your car, you know what guns it has, you know what it can do. Warhammer, you built your army list, you know what you can do. Like there's none of this, like there's none of these like in-game decision-making. So I think what's really interesting about A Billion Sons is you're making some of the metagame decisions that you would normally make well in advance on the fly in response to the available contracts and also what your opponent is doing during the course of the game. So, yeah. And I don't, I don't know if that counts as crunchier, but it's certainly harder work. Like, but it requires more Ram. There is crunch to that because you're, you're making decisions when you have to make up your mind about something like on the fly, it's a very different experience. And I, I learned a bunch of lessons playing the games of a billion sons I've played so far that aren't taught by the rule book, but only by playing. Like for instance, I realized halfway through my last game, I'd spent almost the entire budget of the revenue of the game on my ships by like turn two. And I was like, oh, I can't even dig out of this hole. Like this is 0% chance of being in this game anymore. Like I'm just going to go kill all the enemy ships right now to make myself feel better because there's no way I'm getting out of this hole. And I did it with like a red haze of bloodlust where I was like, no, nah, you're going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to spawn in big ships or whatever. But then realizing I've just dug this giant hole I'm never going to get out of. And you don't, I mean, you can intellectually absorb that, but until you actually make that mistake for the first time and then get fired as CEO because you made a terrible decision and decided to play a battleship because you didn't like the guy, the way the guy spoke about your tires or something like that, um, then, then you don't really understand that about the game. And to me, that is crunch because the more, the more impactful and long-term your tactical decisions are and the more effect they have on the outcome of the game. That's, that's a single decision, what ships I deploy during a jump cost me made it a hugely uphill struggle for me to actually win that game all of a sudden and so i think there is a level of crunch where just by where temporally the rules go and what kind of decisions you're making you can add a whole bunch of sort of like depth and, and mental requirement to a game and that was that was really interesting like i found that it wasn't the rules in the book it was the implementation of when i was doing that job that caused me more sort of mental stress
that that's actually kind of fascinating because one of the things that I am turned off by is a game where I have to do a lot of lookup. So um, a game with critical hit tables, for example, like for me, a critical hit table is kind of a red flag because if I have to pick up the rule book and open it to a page and look something up, I feel like I'm disengaging from the system. I'm, I'm kind mm. of I'm kind of doing a bit of like administrative work. That's the camera awesome. pans away for a second and you lose the action. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so and so like crunch in a in a role playing game where I have to look up a bunch of things and cross reference stuff like crunch in a system where it's not 100 percent obvious to me, like what a dice result result means that I have to go and check a cross-reference or something like for, for me maybe this is a maybe this is about how successful your implementation of complexity is like an implementation of complexity which which forces me to look something up in a table I am less excited about an implementation of complexity which requires me to go hmm, I'm thinking really hard like that for me is what games should be about on some level like obviously they're also about sharing fun social experiences with your friends but like in order to get that like juicy tactical experience out of right them, Think, you feel yourself overheating you feel you feel that you feel the fans come out of the back head trying right but but if, but if it's like yeah. there are there are several things that i understand intuitively and the interaction of them is not intuitive and now i'm having to think about it like that's elegance even though it's crunchy versus clunkiness um where okay something happens now i have to disengage from the game to look something up on a table right and, mm-hmm. it's pulling me out of the experience they're not they're not, they're not um I'm not saying one of those is wrong. One of those is crunch and one of those isn't. I think they're just different shades of of, of how crunch manifests at the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they well, and they put your they put your brain in different situations too, which I think is interesting because there are people whose entire hobbies, and I think that social media backs this up, is the meta game that happens before where the crunch is actually in. You have so many available options to design your army list and to try and get the perfect absolute every ounce of power out of the point system or whatever the balancing system is that it's debated on, on the internet. You know what I mean? Ad infinitum forever. And companies will make money literally upon renewing that they release new army books. They release new things to get you to change your purchasing patterns and go and buy models that were being bought before or whatever it is. Um, but you've just flipped that on its head and, and, and taken that metagame and stuck it into the actual game, which I think is really interesting. And also said, I mean, there's, there's don't a worry re- about your miniatures. Well, you've also said, don't worry about your miniatures. If you have spaceship miniatures, make sure they, they kind of fit whatever the descriptions are here in this list of spaceships. But as long as your miniatures, you feel fit these descriptions, then you're fine. If it looks like a carrier, it's a carrier. If it looks like a cruiser, it's a cruiser. If it looks like a gunship, it's a gunship, whatever, right? Um, that's a, that's a, a really... There's a oh, reading of the Billion Suns, which is like it's actually quite a reaction. It's quite a reaction against metagaming and armchair gaming. And I, like to be clear, I love writing lists and stuff. But what emerged from the system is something which, um, like, it's impossible to. It, it's ultimately impossible to netlist this game. There is no. There is no concept in this game, and so um, a bit like. It's a bit like the difference between um, a deck builder with a with a buffet in front of you and Magic: The Gathering or, or Netrun, where you've built your your deck, like pre constructed deck. Yeah, you can't you can't attack it in that way? And so I think it's kind of intrig. I'm, I'm I'm also sort of intrigued about whether there's a competitive scene possibility for a billion suns because of that, which is 
if you want to play a competitive war game and you are less excited about list building and more excited about the exchange of tactical pheromones, then maybe yeah. this is a thing that offers a different kind I, of I would say that's definitely that's definitely in the running for this one too, because there's a there's a simple there's a lot of simple ways of doing a competitive billion suns event where all you have to do is just as a group you generate the you generate the contracts basically for everyone in the event and then they just all play them out together and that way it's a it's it's literally just chess, right? Everyone's got the same the same problem to try and solve with their fleets, and so you can go about actually running it like in a competitive format. So it hadn't it hadn't actually occurred to me, but um, a lot of my game design I, I already knew that a lot of my game design ideas are ripped off of Malifaux, which I think is <laughs> you just it's the same thing I was thinking. The scheme pool, the group scheme pool, yeah, for, the, for Malifaux. The pool, like I played the, the game that I mostly played competitively was Malifaux Second Edition, and two things happen in that game. One is you don't necessarily, depending on the, the event, you don't know what the schemes and, and strategies are. So you don't mm-hmm. know what are walking to the table. And what the game, what the, the tournament organizers tended to do was give you a hundred soul stones to purchase a pool of models. Right. And the actual rules of the game said, number one, define the terrain. Number two, flip out what the strats and schemes are. Number three, choose your uh, crew. And a lot of people didn't do that. They'd come with crews that they were comfortable with or whatever, but that is in the rules that you choose your crew on the fly. In the in the UK scene, it was quite unlikely to see people running the same list in every uh, in every game because there were better ways of playing Malifaux than running the same selection models. Maybe you only swapped a few things in and out, but like there were certain objective runners that if there wasn't a certain scheme in the scheme pool, you just wouldn't put that model. Yeah, in. yeah, you didn't you didn't bring baby ter- Teratots or whatever if there wasn't a lot of movement. Exactly, Teratots is the, the, the canonical example. And so I guess in some, like, I hadn't realized how maybe direct lineage the the idea of a, a, a pool that you, that you draw from as opposed to a, a list that you build in advance kind of informs that game. It was the first thing I thought of when I saw the contract deck. I was like, oh, it's a scheme pool. Perfect. I got oh, no, this. this. Like that, yeah, and that immediately, but it's interesting because because I have so many games in the back of my head, I I do that, I do that thing from the matrix where it's I don't see the I don't necessarily see the individual mechanics anymore. I just see like the DNA going back from right. all these different things, you know what I mean? Where you can trace a line back to these different like processes and and they're not it's not it's not even being derivative. It's that mostly when you're using things like random number generators, like a deck of cards or, or dice or whatever, there's only so many ways of doing things, right? So like there's there's going to be some similarities that get drawn back consciously or subconsciously or whatever. And that's, I think, a, a great one because it does mean that a billion suns can be played by a large group of people all playing the same problem set. You know what I mean? And that that, can, that could be a thing that that could allow that game to... I think be like a competitively interesting game and it's it, and because all of the choice you show up to the game without having made any choices yet I think that is a really a brilliant way of um of measuring strategic prowess if, if people are into that it can have a lot of legs for for doing so so here's here's a here's a bit of a question so you brought up a couple of examples of crunchy games like um like Battletech like um Star uh, the, 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 the Starfleet Battles the old oh. Star Trek game so th- there's also there's a there's maybe an unfair relationship drawn between detailed games and crunchy games or, or things that are, that are, you know, grognardian and neckbeardy mm-hmm. and things that are trying to achieve detail. Because I've been having a lot of fun with Adeptus Titanicus, the, the recent um, the recent one. Um, yeah, James, 2018 one. Yeah, by, by James Hewins. And that's got a lot of detail. And, and James was very clear that he was baking that detail in because this is about three giant robots and all of those giant robots you need to care about and you need to be massaging oil into their joints and it's very important that you know where all of their joints are yeah Um, oh and it also intentionally slows down the gameplay 
it it makes the game go longer when there's processes you have to go through and people can take a lot of damage and these things feel more sort of ponderous there's there's an actual that when you're talking about things that are moving kind of in like massive slow motion like watching a building fall over more ponderous rules actually fit the feeling of managing those huge immense it makes them feel more immense you know what i mean when you have to know how the reactors are all doing and exactly where the damage is landing on them and stuff like that and that that's that's a super interesting point because um when you compare that with X-Wing, which probably in most games of X-Wing, there are the same number of individual models in a game of X-Wing as there are in a game of Adeptus Titanicus. Like, which is crunchier? It's obvious. But at the same time, like, there was a decision made in uh, X-Wing that I wasn't going to micromanage the subsystems of my X-Wing. Like, in the original video game X-Wing, like, I could push my shields forward, I could redirect, like, energy from my shields to my engines, I could match... Mm -hmm things like I could do a bunch of detailed flight simulator things because it was 1993 and we all had you know every every button on our keyboard was mapped to a different mech warrior yeah <laughs> exactly yeah um but like that by reducing the complexity and the crunch and abstracting a lot of x-wing you get 25 activations or turns or whatever in that game versus Adeptus Titanicus where you probably move three times or four times three or maximum. four times at most yeah um but like the same amount of game time, the same amount of playtime has elapsed and you've just been with the same number of models, you've just been very differently focused. And it's interesting because I think it would universally be decided that Adeptus Titanicus is the crunchier game, but like you probably play for the same amount. Maybe, maybe not. You probably play Adeptus Titanicus for a bit longer, but you know what I mean? Like it's not. I, it's funny because I actually approach that incredibly differently because it, I, I actually think that in its final days of its first edition, X-Wing could be considered more crunchy because there's far more available intersections of rules because there's so much stuff out for it now. There's so many more ships and then card upgrades for those ships and X and Y. So I look at I look at a game like X-Wing, which had been around for probably five years when um, Titanicus came out. And the first few games of Titanicus I played, because we're both playing with the same pieces, right? And same access to everything, because it's always a mirror match in Titanicus. It's just, are you loyalist? Are you traitor? There's not a lot of variation. Mm. It's far... The mechanically, it might be crunchier in the processes you do to resolve taking a step, firing a gun, taking damage. But the choices and permutations that go into it, I feel like it's just where are you laying that that depth? Are you laying it into the pregame or the postgame? And then how does it bleed over, right? Because you can make a Titanicus like maniple in like five minutes because it's just layout cards how many arms can i fit that, that that you know that cost me the right amount but we all have access to the same cards and we all know what they are versus now in like uh x-wing it's like do i take the poe damon x-wing or do i take the like you know like which one do i take like do i take who's my who's my fighter pilot did i buy the Corellian cruiser so i have an r2 unit i don't have an r2 unit my opponent has an r2 unit like all of these like other pregame decisions and it's just where are you kind of spending your time and layering it um it's actually really fast for instance to build a battletech force you just take like and most it's just unless you're designing your own mac you're going and saying, okay, well, what's our battle value we're going to play? We just pick max up that battle value and we play it. It's, yeah, they're huge numbers because there was a desire, I guess, to be really accurate in your point valuing. So you're playing like a 10,000 battle value or something like that. I mean, it's four or 5,000 or whatever. But that doesn't mean that it, you're doing more than adding three numbers together and then playing a game. Um, it's the then Titanicus style allocation of damage and filling in little blocks every time somebody gets shot and what systems are operational and how much heat do I have on me. That management's where you're spending all your time. I'm far more scared of complex like absorption of 
um, like how many armies are and units are and choices I have. I'm way more paralyzed by that than I am paralyzed by like, I got to go through some extra steps when I'm playing a game. <laughs> unless it unless it does what you're talking about and it pulls you out of the game. The total homework that you have to do to absorb a system in its entirety versus... Because I, I always think of that as the competitive mindset. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. I mean, like, if I want to play a game, I just have to know how my orcs work and how your tower work. If I want to compete, I have to know where everything is on the power curve and how everything interacts. Otherwise, I just can't compete. Yeah. Um, and can I change the topic then? So sure. you mentioned you mentioned the battle tech a couple times there. So when you were when you were in the sort of maybe in the early stages or in the, the sort of mid de uh, development stages, like for Gamma Wolves, did you set out to create? A less crunchy game? Were you not worried about that? Did it get to a point where it was too crunchy and you had to bring it back? Like, how did you how did you approach that for that game? So it's funny when I was when I was writing Gamma Wolves, the game I was playing a lot actually was Arena Rex, which is a gladiatorial pit fighting game. And the thing I found fascinating about that mechanic was, or the, the game was, that mechanically it it didn't value um, your prowess as much as it valued your ability to activate and stay on the table for a long time. And so when I was writing Gamma Wolves, my thought was, well, one, I want people to be able to use whatever miniatures they want. I want people to be able to take the robot they want and just it, base, insert robot, go play. You know what I mean? You and I are using the same scale robots, so we're having a good time. We're, we're excited. Um, and then I wanted the process of putting all that stuff together to be relatively simple, but stuff to be different enough that it felt like if I took an auto cannon versus a shot cannon, the role of this robot now changes. I'm either you know getting up close and brawling, it's hard time to dodge me versus I'm kind of more tactical and able to maneuver and stuff like that. And so I kept the robot construction as light and open-ended as possible because I wanted people to be able to use whatever robot miniature they wanted and find an analog in the rules. And so there's still lots of choices to make. And if you're designing and building your own robots, which is a whole hobby in and of itself, I've discovered in the Game of Wolves Facebook group, um, there's tons of, there's ton, there's just, uh, it's the Goldilocks zone, right? How much is too much detail and how much is just like kind of the just right amount of detail. And so my, it's funny because for me in my list writing, if I was to draw parallel to a billion suns, your ship classes are my gun classes. Right. And then scale is, is the size of my max, right? So the choices you're making deploying uh, ships in a billion suns are what you're doing, deploying offensive loadouts on your max is you're, you're just, you're making a tactical decision. Um, but you're doing it pre-game for versus post-game for mine. But it's that simple. It's just does this does this gun feel like it looks like the gun on my robot? Go uh, apply and go and go and play. Um, and so when I was when I was interested in, I didn't want damage to take a long time. I didn't want um, resolutions to take a long time. But I wanted my opponent and me to have lots of choices while that stuff was happening. And so you do have like limb damage in, in Gamma Wolves, like you do in BattleTech and in um, in uh, whatchamacallit in uh, uh, Titanicus, but you have limb damage where it's not fully random. There's a chart, it's just a D6, so it's really easy to memorize. I didn't want it to be like a whole list of like 18 different options. It's just, it's actually only five options because you hit the body more often than you hit anything else. Yep. So it's sensors, um, then it's, 
I can't, now I can't remember because I haven't played the <laughs> in a while. It's sensors. Yeah, then it's, no I think it's weapon loadout left and right. Then it's body. Then it's propulsion. What's unfair um, about this is that he it remembers all five permutations <laughs> has been during the development. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's funny because in the Let's Play, I almost played a version of uh, Gam Wolves. It's like two versions before the version that got published, um, which is which actually happened in last days because there was a pushback mechanic in last days in the Let's Play. And people kept asking like, how come I can't push people back in last days? I'm like, because that doesn't exist in the version I'm playing just ignore me like don't just ignore the guy behind the camera just listen to the rule book like just whatever it says in the rule book is the answer to the question i'm an idiot don't 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 ask me any questions um which is something only it's a joke that only a game designer can really like you people might laugh and think that's funny a game designer will will probably fall down because that's too real um so i just i just finished i just finished recording a couple of playtest sessions of me playing myself and uh, it was only until I watched your review of the rule book that I realized mm. I'd completely forgotten about uh, Jump Shock for the entire video. <laughs> the thing you were really proud of, you are like, it's just like in this movie I really like, and I put it in for that, and then like, I the jumped central the central concept of the rules. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and it's it, it's also a selling feature too where you can fly spaceships and other spaceships to, to take I know, them on your jump points I know, I know. Uh, anyway um but the uh, well I, I i took i got your back jack don't worry about it i got the, i got this <laughs> yeah exactly so so for gamma wolves that was the point was that you you and your opponent there was enough depth to make it interesting but when you land on a location in gamma wolves with with an attack um, and even before that, when you make your attack, I choose to target you with a weapon. You can choose to dodge or not. You can just let your mech absorb all the damage or you can evade. Evading, unless you're already moving, typically costs you a pilot stress. So you're, you're spending a resource now to do it. Same with when you make an attack and you successfully land it, you roll your location, but you can trade successes in your shooting attack to dial that location into where you want it to be, right? So you can hit less to hit where you want. So if you want to blind a guy, you can track your shots up to his sensors in exchange for more damage. And that's actually one of the most common questions about beam weapons. It's like, well, why do beam weapons only do like a flat amount of damage? They don't do a ton of damage. It's like, well, they actually do a ton of damage and they give you a bunch of successes to move it around to land it exactly where you want. So if you think of it as this pinpoint laser of where it's like a, a giant saw blade, you can trade all that stuff you're going to discard now to put that saw blade exactly on the guy's gun or exactly in the guy's eyes or whatever to put it wherever you want. And that choice meant that there was just, I, I, I limited myself to a D6 in depth. There's only so many things that can happen. And yes, they're random, but you and your opponent get to make some choices while they're happening to make them more specific. So shallow enough that you could memorize it and not have to flip the book open. Cause that was a big thing with me too. I hate having to book, flip the book open. Mm -hmm. um, but in depth enough that there's knock on decisions you get to make from that randomness that allow you to have like interesting strategic sort of like options and stuff. Um, so, one, one, one thing that kind of grows from that, which, um, cause the way that you were describing there, like how the laser moves, like you've got a very clear sense of why this rule exists. It's because you're trying to evoke a situation, dare I say, simulate a situation. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, um, one of the things that Gaslands, that happens in the Gaslands community is that some things in that game are kind of slightly wonky or slightly rubbery or slightly video gamey in the way that the physics functions. Elastic is the game design term I've, I, I like to use because it sounds right. less, less offensive than wonky. <laughs> yeah, but like, the there are people in the community who will rightly defend that as there has got to be a level of abstraction in games design and and gaslands has chosen to abstract this thing because it's more fun when you can drive through walls as if they mm -hmm. aren't there 
because yeah. honestly, try it the other way. It's super, super lame. Um, That's and, Mario Kart where you bump at everything and stop, which <laughs> sucks. <laughs> and whereas um, some of the crunchier games, like the crunches that, that we've been talking about comes from, well, if I'm going to hit you with an axe, I need to know where the axe lands. And if the axe lands somewhere, like genuinely axes are heavy and sharp and something really bad is going to happen. So let's find out what happens. And that idea of simulation, um, I think is interesting as well, because uh War games, tabletop miniature war games, because they have these little figurines, they sort of, they sort of speak to you and they say, these people are walking, a, a, you know, with their little plastic legs across the table. And it, it's interesting because I, I don't come from a world where the, the, the word ground scale is not something I've ever said. I've never tried to figure out what relation, what the relationship of my little miniatures to the, the length of road that they're standing on is, because I'm okay with the idea that these are playing pieces in a tactical experience and what i want to have first is a game and what i want is for that game to throw out cinematic moments not so much simulationist moments but um what i was thinking was i was interested about what rules you took out of um gamma wolves because i can imagine that there were tons of things that you wanted to put in about how like pipes would explode and steam and that would blind people and you even when you're not wanting to write a crunchy game, this like instinct to simulate exciting c- cinematic or like things that should happen. Like when this happens, something's going to happen. And if you don't include a rule for that, like that's goofy and you'll, you'll be, so is the, were there some fun things that. Yeah. So, so actually one of the, out? one of the mechanics that gets commented on the most in Gamma Wolves, which I'm actually really proud of came out of that process of removing something from the game that I, I've struggled with for a long time. And I thought was really important but actually ended up better serving me in a different way. And that was in one of the first drafts of Gamma Wolves, your reactor is still a thing you need to manage, but there was like a low level fuel consumption. Cause I liked the idea of there being like a bingo fuel where you had to go back, right? There's a point of no return and where you've gone, you fought for too long and you can't fight anymore without just dying in the sea of destruction. Yep. And I struggle with how to effectively make that um a a interesting mechanic that wasn't just managing chits and wasn't just managing a really big number right managing a number that that was way it was it was a a like a uh you know a, a, a turn down dial that you had to have next to each robot because that really to me the f like uh, fuel dial yeah exactly that to me was boring and so making it a collective resource um i i threw it all away basically at one point i was like ah oh, the reactor but i need the reactors because the reactors are part of like the two resource pool management chain that's in the game where you're managing basically how much energy does your pilot have versus how much energy does the robot have and how many things can each of them do during a turn. So I needed something in there to stay. And so when I threw it all away and said, well, I won't have to manage fuel consumption at all individually by robot. And then I went and was writing scenarios and thought, well, wait, hang on. I haven't actually, I haven't actually decided how the game ends yet. (laughs) I haven't actually decided like, I know that you'll win by getting the most salvage typically, unless the scenarios I'm writing are going to do something else, but what's a, what's a good thing to put some stress. And, and, I, and, and then the second part of that was while we're playtesting, Owen is building these like artillery monster robots. They're just sitting back and shelling me to death from like far away and never doing anything. And then once I'm actually all dead, then going and like cleaning up all the objectives and stuff. And I'm like, well, that's, that's, that, that fucking sucks. We both have an Owen and they are a tremendous gift. A tremendous gift from heaven. Yes. He's the son I never wanted. Um, so the, 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 like, 
<laughs> the, 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 the value of that type of player though, of that person trying to break your game and, and doing what comes naturally to them is what's best. And how can I do it the most is that they make you reassess how the game is being played. And so by doing something where I put basically your fuel consumption as your turn limit, um, it forced him out. Right. So like it didn't matter. Cause it didn't matter if it was my fuel that ran out or his fuel that ran out. You don't automatically concede the game. If I get off, if my fuel runs out and I've gotten everything off the table, I can just dash and grab and he can show me all day, but it's not going to kill me fast enough for me not to grab these things and get off the table. So, and then the game ends and he's run out of resources basically because one of us has decided to, to, to go home. Um, and that elastic war clock, basically putting pressure on the players to do the thing they're there to do, which is grab salvage and, and, and fight each other off trying to do so, or, you know, kill whatever the giant war bot is. It's in the middle of the table. They want to scavenge its arms off of or whatever um, became a really good fix to, I want to include this feeling in the game. It's way too complicated the way I keep writing it over and over again. If I just toss it, like I keep, I keep the thing that's the underpin of it, which is the reactor stress level on all the max. But then I just remove it into this big group pool where it's every mission um, has this resource that both sides are managing. And every time you you bleed reactor stress off your guys, it reduces this war clock, right? And when your war clock hits zero, the game's over. That, that solution basically um, was me taking that out of the game and saying, wow, this is just too complicated. Like, this isn't fun to manage. Why, why cannot this not just be do sums, reduce number? You know what I mean? As opposed to individually, each of these guys need to manage how hot their robot is and what they're doing right now that's making the robot hot. And it's like, that's too much detail. No one cares about how hot their robot is. They care about shooting the arms off that robot over there and how long they have to do that. And so it, I think when you, when you come to looking at those kinds of mechanics, those are the kinds of mechanics that you do need to cut out. Cause it didn't serve a purpose, like you said, of making the game feel a certain way. And to me, as a, as a designer, if it doesn't further the feeling I'm trying to create in the game, and I'm a big feelings guy in games, I, I worry so much about how a game feels while you're playing it. Um, mm-hmm. Because to me, that's, that's the success or failure of a game right and that brain overheating thing is a feeling even of itself like having to make these like on the fly tactical decisions and then being washed over with regret almost immediately because you overspent and you realize <laughs> it like halfway through that's a feel like, I, I enjoy that i felt but it's certainly it's certainly creating feelings i just i just sat there being like my boss is gonna be so mad at me <laughs> and like i could feel the performance review coming that was just gonna be absolutely terrible i could feel hr starting to write emails about like my 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 per- performance during this game um that's that's a really important like thing and dialing that in as, as a designer i think is where you start to come to grips with with the, the 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 word count in this section of the game needs to reflect the emphasis i want the player to spend doing x or y thing and how they feel while they're doing it and that's a really good measure for me when i'm writing is if if it takes too long to do this thing that that I don't really want them to be worrying about doing it. How can I scrap that and come back to it and make it make it more conducive to focusing on the things I do want them doing? I yeah, I, I, I really I really like that example because it feels like you 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 had something that you wanted to include which felt like a detail that was meaningful to the robots, and then you couldn't find a reason for it to exist in the game. But then you found a, a problem with the game that needed fixing, and you 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 had that solution lying around. To bring this back around to the beginning with with rifts and so on, like all design really is like a explosion of ideas and then you have to winnow them down and then you have to figure out which ones are working and make something incredible out of that and build them back up to the best version of themselves. And I do like 
the simulation mindset is a tremendous way of generating ideas. And I think that something like Rifts or RuneQuest is uh, somewhat, and I'm going to sound like I'm just, I'm just chewing at a new one, but it's 30 years old. Like, right, yeah. And like, that's the product of not going through the other part of the design process where yeah. having come up with loads of amazing ideas and being excited about it all, like now kill 80% of those because they probably don't do anything. And if you can remove 80% of the ideas and it's still fun, uh, or it's not quite fun, but you can put three of the ideas back, then then that feels like, that's that for me feels like what, we are trying to achieve as game designers is to is to minimize complexity the, to the point where it, it it can't go anymore and then just you know that's like there's a few little details that need to be in there but you've you've reduced it down to a thick consume and i would yeah i would i would argue that being a game designer isn't coming up with a clever mechanic a cl anyone can come up with a clever mechanic nine nine out of ten indie like or, or amateur game designers will sit around after they play a game and go i wish they did it this way in a game Designing a game isn't coming up with a, a, a good game mechanic. Designing a game is coming up with 600 good game mechanics, but being able to self-edit it down into a game that's fun to play. And to me, that's the biggest growth I've had on my journey writing is, is learning when to, to step back from it and cut out all that fat because the fat in a game is what makes people, it could be something that's your favorite part of a whole game, but if it doesn't resonate with people or resonate with what you're trying to project, it can be the thing that, that weighs your game down and makes it not fun and makes it not accomplish the mission you're trying to accomplish. And so being able to edit, I think that's where you, you start to become like, that's, that's, your, those are your proficiency slots leveling up as you're a game designer, as you're, as you're growing as a game designer. And, and it's really hard to do because you have to admit to yourself, well, that sucked. <laughs> or like, or like this thing, this over-engineered that, you know, you built the Homer, you built the green car that sinks Herb's company, right? Where it's just got too much stuff on it and it costs $80,000 to make one of them. And it's this over-engineered, you know, like, like super thing that isn't necessarily what you were trying to make in the beginning. The reason why some things are so successful actually is the elegance and the simplicity of them achieving a single purpose, right? They do the thing that they're designed to do. They do what they say on the tin, not everything all at once. And that would be my advice to amateur game designers out there is that when you're writing your first game, do vomit all those good ideas that you have and clever mechanics you have down there. But then think about what you're trying to make. A game isn't its mechanics. A game is how those mechanics are cut basically and what the emphasis is. Like you said, a consomme, it's, it's about flavor. Like how do you add the flavor in the right spot? You don't put salt in everything, although you some people do. The, the, the other, the other bit, the other thing that I do, uh, I don't know if this is a piece of advice or not, but the other thing that I do is that I write all of those moments where I realize that something is terrible in blog posts, because number one, that creates content and everybody wants more content. But number two, then you can sort of exercise it and be like, this was a good idea and I'm going to write it down for posterity. There it is. There are six priority activation steps at the beginning of every turn of a billion suns. And I thought it would be wonderful, but it's absolutely horrible. And there it is, it's written down and I can let it go. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, this, the, the, the initiative sequence of A Billion Suns used to be uh, generate work invoice, email work invoice in triplicate. Yeah. <laughs> One work invoice past HR. You know, like <laughs> it was like seven steps of like corporate garbage speak to get to roll a D12 and roll lower than the other guy. <laughs>
Yeah, that's that's what the RPG is going to be like. Oh, I can't wait for the Billion Suns RPG. Yeah, and everyone needs to be smoking cigarettes like it was space in the eighties, where like for some reason you're in a sealed environment full of oxygen, and absolutely everybody is chain smoking for no reason, like it's aliens. Or <laughs> James Cameron's like, "What do you mean there's pure oxygen everywhere? I don't give a shit. Everyone's gonna be smoking all the time." <laughs> that's my favorite part. Rewatching Aliens, all I can think of was they're all dead in like five minutes. Like the oxygen supply is just gonna catch on fire. And they're literally all dead. They're all smoking all the time. That was the first thing Nash solved was how to smoke in space. <laughs> That's the reason why the space race uh, in a billion suns happened is they managed to solve the smoking problem early. But everyone else is just like, I can't go up there without my player's light. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know what? I think we are coming up on an hour. We did it. I think we've successfully. Do you have anything you want to sign off about, about a billion suns in particular or about talking about um this crunch stuff because i think we've done a good job of like of like hitting that hitting that goal post yeah i think that was uh that was that was interesting and it was super interesting to hear your process as well because um i i like listening to other people's struggles and learning from them so thank you for that well i think that's that is the joy of blaster is that um collectively as a group we I think it's funny because you weren't, there's part, there's parts of it that, that, that unfortunately I'm hoping we, we, have, we talked about this actually in our meeting earlier today, for those of you listening is um, we talked about how we're going to put it, sort of putting aside money so that Joe and Mike can fly to the next like couple of conventions that we all go to, to come to our like game designer dinners. But the re- the reason that Sean and Joe and I and Joey became friends was we would just go and eat food, usually at game conventions and talk about how much it sucks to write, miniature games and uh <laughs> and how hard it can be basically to like oh the tiny violin the tiny- <laughs> but, but 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 like literally that is that is that is a thing that we all love talking about i think that's part of why blaster works is most of our phone calls will dissolve into like us talking about whatever it is we're working on right now or what's in our brain as far as that kind of stuff because it's hard unless you've done it to appreciate the the being bad at it you know what i mean and i think we we do we learn more by sharing all the things that we've been terrible at with each other than anything else because it's it's all a journey right and you're not going to get it right the first time there's going to be things that you wish you'd done differently and for those of you listening i think joe said it in our our one-on-one meeting is that the only difference between a game designer and a, a, a person that wants to design games is one's just gone and done it and if and if and if you can have those conversations with yourself in the beginning too, you'll write a better game of just being admitting when you've done something. It's like, oh man, why did I? <laughs> I'm just throwing it away and starting again. Well, there's going to be my, sorry. I was going to say there, for everything we finished, there's going to be a million things on the cutting room floor. Go ahead. Sorry about that. I was just going to say my my main regret and my learning as a as a games designer is not demanding that a billion sons be a hardback offspring book. <laughs> Although I, it's funny, I was thinking of silver lining for that though. Having having that twenty dollars price point, Canadian is makes it way accessible. I I think that okay. Gaslands being a like a, an almost I don't think about it investment level when it first came out it was a huge bonus to it because you could if you think about just how affordable it was to play Gaslands first edition to buy like a twenty dollars book and then a dollar you know fifty worth of Matchbox cars, you, there was a real low bar to entry just financially and that does and, and the game is wicked fun to play as a group so I I mean I remember seeing pictures of people who were like school teachers who would just go you know buy like a, a Rubmate container full of like dinky cars and then throw it down and teach people how to play the game and have these big group sessions where it was instantly it was the um the christmas morning test right you could just play instantly with just a rule book and a yeah. photocopy of the templates and you're ready to go i think there's some real value in that i don't think that it's I, I don't think a hard i don't think a hardback makes the difference in the game being successful i think that there's some value in both 
No, yeah, sure. Uh, Billion Sons fails the Christmas morning test hard. <laughs> it does. It does a little bit. Yes, it does require quite a bit of prep uh, going into it, and also the token, I don't know. the tokens that I've put up for free download on the website solve a lot of those problems. But uh, yeah, no. I was going to say if you just, I think just by having those assets for free online and just reemphasizing that all the time, you'll get around that too. Uh, yeah, that's a whole, there's a whole separate topic there about DIY games and, mm-hmm. and you know. Us, us reminiscing about how how much we we want to be building terrain and and versus versus like for me the gaslands uh, the intersection of gaslands as a as a game with the board gaming community who were like they were willing and open for it but um they were like at game conventions at board game conventions like UK Games Expo people would come past and go wow this looks really cool like do you buy that terrain there like no I made it out of toilet rolls yeah exactly. <laughs> You can go to the pound shop and buy some cars and play this game immediately. And it's still, but that still melts their brain. Like that, that level of DIY still is is a is a barrier for some people because they 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 they're used to just opening a box and it's all there, right? Everything's just in the box, ready to go. So it's it's a next kind of like step for them. We should probably hit. We should probably hit stop on record before we uh, start. Before we get too far down the rabbit hole. All right. Well, thanks for listening and watching, everybody. We will see you for another one of these in the future. Till then, I'm Ash, and this is Mike. Have a good Hey, thanks. Bye. Thanks for tuning in and checking out today's Let's Talk Game Design. Now, if you have ideas for topics that uh, me and the Blaster crew could discuss, put them down in the comments below and let us know what you thought about this episode uh, and any of your thoughts on the topics that we talked about. Big thanks for watching. We'll see you next time for the Let's Talk. Till then, I'm Ash. Happy programming.